Hey you, welcome to Thursday's programme, the 9th of November 2023. I'm Richie Allen from a wet and windy Salford. Hope you're well. Thanks for finding me. Drop me a line via the website or via the app. The Richie Allen Show, as you know, has an app. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. Live from the magnificent city of Salford, that's right, yeah. And you're supposed to be hearing something there, but you didn't hear it at all. Let's hear it now. One of those weeks. <laughs> it's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I might just embrace artificial intelligence. I think I'll embrace artificial intelligence. What do you reckon? I don't know. We'll talk about it. I've got a terrific program lined up for you today. Coming up this hour, we'll be joined once again by Alex Mitchell. Alex came on the program around about a year ago. And he got his first dose of AstraZeneca's COVID jab in March of 2021. Not long after arriving home, he became very ill and was rushed to hospital. He had surgery for blood clots. However, his leg was amputated in order to save his life. Very brave man. Told us that story last year. I've invited Alex back on the programme because, you'll, you'll be aware of this, the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 jab has been branded defective in a multi-million pound landmark legal action that will suggest claims over its efficacy even were vastly overstated, right? There are two test cases being brought before the High Court. It may lead to many, many more cases being taken against AstraZeneca. So Alex Mitchell will join the programme. Now, a little bit later on, uh, delighted to be joined by Daniel Ben-Ami. Daniel is a very accomplished journalist, broadcast and print. He's written for everyone, really. Um, he's written for Spiked lately, and he has an article on Spiked or in Spiked Online, From the River to the Sea is a Coded Call for Genocide. That's according to the journalist Daniel Ben-Ami. We'll talk to Daniel about that and more in the second hour. Uh, Daniel was recommended to me, by the way, by Stuart Waiton, the academic and author and also writer. And uh, I'm glad he's coming on. So we'll get uh, his thoughts on lots around what's happening in Gaza and more. Daniel Ben-Ami a little bit later on. I've already told you, if you'd like to opine, I'm sure you would. You can do it via the website or via the app. Drop me a line. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Suella Braverman is the Home Secretary. I've lost a bet with myself. I do a newspaper roundup program. It's a podcast every morning. And I did suggest earlier that by the time I finish the program today, this program, the live show, she might be out of a gig. But as far as I understand, she isn't out of a gig just yet. Um, no, she isn't. No. Uh, the BBC is reporting, though, that 10 Downing Street is um, basically disowning a statement made by Suella Braverman about the police, where she complained about the police, accusing the police of bias. In fact, she wrote an op-ed for The Times. She claimed in it, aggressive right-wing protesters were rightly met with a stern response, while pro-Palestinian mobs were largely ignored. She's accused the police of bias. Right. The article she wrote was sent to Downing Street but wasn't cleared by Rishi Sunak and a number of Tory MPs and others are demanding that she be fired now. She's had a good few weeks, Braverman, hasn't she? She said that, in her opinion, the homelessness was a lifestyle choice for some 
She was talking about banning tents in the UK uh, cities. All of this, this big row, comes ahead of a pro-Palestinian march for a ceasefire in Gaza, which is due to take place in central London this Saturday, which is Armistice Day. We've talked about this a lot this week. Uh, Policing Minister Chris Philp answered an urgent question called by the Shadow Home Secretary, Yvette Cooper. This is what Philp had to say on the issue we just spoke about. The Metropolitan Police asked protesters to postpone their planned protest this weekend, but the request was refused. The Prime Minister met with the Commissioner, I think yesterday, to seek reassurances that remembrance events will be protected. Uh, Remembrance events, of course, play a special part in this nation's uh, long and proud history. And it would be uh, a grave insult if they were to be disrupted in any way. It is for the Metropolitan Police to decide whether to apply to the Home Secretary to ban any such march. Uh, as of this morning, no such application has been received, but the Home Secretary will, of course, carefully consider one should it be made. Yeah, the Met Commissioner Mark Rowley has said that there isn't any evidence, there isn't any basis on which they should ban the march. And we've been saying this on this programme, haven't we? Thanks to listeners to this programme who know these things and they've turned out to be correct. The march, the planned route for the pro-Palestinian rally is going nowhere near the cenotaph. This is a big storm in a teacup, maybe. Lots on this as the programme develops. How's Keir Starmer dealing with the unrest in his party? As many as a third of Labour MPs, apparently, are unhappy that he has failed to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Mm. Rosie Duffield is an MP. She's been in the news quite a lot in recent months to do with uh, the gender nonsense, as I see it. Um, Rosie Duffield was on Politics Live. How is Starmer doing then with all of this unrest in Labour? I mean, I happen to agree with Keir's take on things. I've got an awful lot of, of Jewish friends who don't feel safe at the moment and I work very closely with the Jewish community because of partly the history of the Labour Party in the last few years. It's been incredibly difficult and anyone coming in as leader of the Labour Party after the Corbyn years and all of the scandals that we went through then has got a very difficult job and he has those MPs, that third of the party, have largely got very big and engaged Muslim communities. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to sort of dumb down, you know, the pain that people are feeling. And, and it's it's incredibly difficult. I wouldn't want to be Keir Starmer at the moment, juggling all of those different feelings and emotions. But I think he's doing the best he can in the circumstances. He's doing the best he can with what he has, says Rosie Dunfield. Here's a crazy story. Michael Matheson, this is a Scottish story. He's a a member of the Scottish Parliament and he has been defended by the government and by his leader, Humza Yousaf. This is the Scottish National Party. This guy, Michael Matheson, was on holiday in Morocco and managed to run up an £11,000 iPad roaming bill. And Humza Yousaf, the Scottish First Minister, not elected, of course, uh, he says... He says it's a legitimate parliamentary expense. I I wonder about that. He's on holiday in Morocco. He's using an iPad and the roaming charge is 11 grand and the taxpayer is going to pick it up. How could it be a legitimate parliamentary expense if he's on holiday? How could it be £11,000? I'm reckoning that he was visiting some interesting websites when the missus had gone to bed on that holiday and that might be a bit unfair. 
But um, he shouldn't have to pay back the 11 grand, says Humza Yusuf. Very interesting story in Ireland. I'll read you a little bit from Gript. That's G-R-I-P-T, Gript.ie. We've talked quite a bit on this programme in recent months about, about facilities being, well, how would, you, how would you put it? Well, seized, seized or finagled by the Irish government and, and then turned into centres or, or, or accommodation for asylum seekers or refugees. And there's been a big pushback against this in certain parts of Ireland. Uh, the Gript website reporting is that Animo Refugee Camp will not go ahead after huge local concern. Animo is in County Wicklow, by the way, and the government had planned to house 950 refugees there. But the locals weren't happy at all. And a Fine Gael councillor, Shea Cullen, has spoken to Gript and said that people power has won the day. A meeting in Animo, uh, which is close to the very historical site of Glendalough, last week heard local people say a village of 100 people couldn't take almost 1,000 newcomers. This is the madness of Ireland, really. You know, going to rural areas tiny communities of 100 people or 75 people and saying, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to put 1,000 people here. Well, hang on a second. We, we barely have enough resources for the 100 people we have here. And the hotel that you want to commandeer, that you want to use, well, we kind of need that for socialising and for other matters. But uh, apparently this is, is not going ahead now because people stood up to it and said not in our backyard or not in my backyard. They're NIMBYs, I suppose. I suppose those on the left will be calling them NIMBYs. You're NIMBYs. Yeah. I remember all that chat when I first started in radio. NIMBYism. Anybody who objected to anything happening in their own area was called a NIMBY. It was like a dirty word. Like you might object to, to you know, a big filthy pylon a big electrical pylon being planted right next to your house. And of course, drastically reducing the value of your house. Uh, please don't put that there. Oh, you're only a NIMBY. You're only a NIMBY. Sure, it has to go somewhere, the pylon. That's right, and all of that. So interesting stuff that. We'll be talking about that, of course, as time goes on. Uh, driverless cars. Who is to blame if they cause an accident? This is a good question, right? As they plan on rolling out driverless driverless cars pretty soon and driverless buses and driverless articulated lorries. But if something goes wrong and one of these cars knocks down a school bus full of penguins or something like that, what happens? Or, or, or runs into a, I don't know, anything, right? Well, Kay Burley spoke to Mark Harper. He's the Transport Secretary. Who's to blame, Mark? Self-driving vehicle. You were in one the other day, weren't you? I was yesterday, yes. I was driven around Westminster in one by a fantastic uh, British company called Wave. OK. And if one of those vehicles is in an accident while you've not got your hands mm -hmm. on the wheel, you're not responsible for what might happen? No, so what we're doing, so the legislation that we've announced in the King's Speech will set out a very a robust legal framework to make it clear who's responsible and so what we'll be doing is if the car's in full self-driving mode the driver obviously the, the passenger won't be responsible it'll be the company that's developed that technology and we're going to set out a framework of how that will work and by giving companies that regulatory certainty it makes britain the best place in the world for companies to develop that technology the important thing for people at home sir, to remember is actually this is about how you improve road safety um, the overwhelming majority of accidents that take place have some level of driver 
uh, human error involved in them, we can actually make roads safer, not just for drivers, but also for vulnerable road users, for pedestrians and for cyclists. And all the companies involved in this area are absolutely focused on safety. But there's a big economic win here, is if companies develop this technology in Britain, then we'll create a huge number of jobs and lots of economic growth, which will be uh, of you know very promising. We're a leading player in this area. Mm, leading player in driverless cars. Who's to blame if they have an accident? And speaking of men with weird predilections, with weirdness, who might be caught out, like maybe the Scottish bloke ran up 11 grand on the iPad. Maybe he was visiting websites after hours. Maybe. He maybe wasn't either. I have no proof he was. But this is one of the most bizarre stories ever. If ever you smelt bull spit, this one is it. Right, you know Brian Johnson, you do. I don't mean the lead singer of ACDC. The biohacker Brian Johnson. You know this guy, he's often seen on TV. Um, he claims to have reverse-aged his tallywhacker or his penis by 15 years by using shock therapy on his genitals, revealing he is aiming to have the erections of an 18-year-old. I think that's one of the greatest, that's one of the greatest excuses ever dreamt up on the hoof, ever. That's genius. I mean, this biohacker has to be genius. I reckon what happened there is somebody has walked in on this guy in his birthday suit with electrodes attached to his testa clay. Because that's what he's into. And he has come up with that on the hoof. He has come up with that excuse on the spin. The guy's a genius. You know, you can imagine it. He's pleasuring himself with his electrodes. Somebody bursts in the door. Within a millisecond, he has that excuse. Well, I've discovered that I can reverse age my penis by 15 years. Wow. That's incredible. 13 minutes past the air. That's Emily Lefroy writing for the Daily Mail today. Yeah, you can have the erections of an 18-year-old if you uh, use shock therapy on your tallywhacker. I don't buy it for a minute. I'd like to hear from you today, richieallen.co.uk. Comment live, please. Uh, download the app for the programme. The app, the app, the app can be found at Google Play and it can also be found at the App Store. Back with you in 30 seconds. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. You're listening to the saviour of independent media, Richie Allen. Now, welcome back and welcome back. Thank you very much to Alexandra for your message. Richie, I found consolation after listening to Jackie Weaver yesterday on the show. We lost our... 15-year-old cat, much beloved, last month, and I feel better after listening to your guest yesterday. Thank you, Alexandra. Hi to Rob, who says, you watch the taxpayer foot the bill for the AZ jab effectiveness, and obviously the following Pfizer et al. jabs, says Rob. Thank you, Rob. Gabriel says, Richie. Thank you, Gabriel. Gaz says, Richie, no. Uh, Chris says, Richie, good evening. Looking forward to tonight's show. You're very welcome, Chris. Good evening to you, too. Uh, and Max says, re 
AstraZeneca. Remember, Sir Patrick Vallance stood in front of us every day as the CEO of AZ, promoting the product that he was directly profiting from. Disgusting. That's Mac. Thank you, Mac. And David says, is it true that heterosexual men refusing to have relations with homosexual men are being dismissed as NIMBYs? Yes, that's an old one. That's an old one. I'll give you that. Keep them coming in. Uh, speaking with Alex Mitchell shortly. Huge story, this. Couple of test cases going before the High Court claiming that AZ, the AstraZeneca jab, is defective. I mean, the, 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 the distressing thing for me about all of this is back in 2020, and I'm talking about mid-2020, I'm talking about the autumn, very learned men and women came on this programme science, men and women of science from Ivy League universities and warned people about the lack of long-term safety data around all of the jabs. They warned people that while COVID-19 might be a problem for people with very serious health conditions, you know, that people with um, lung disorders or people with heart, heart issues, and particularly the very senior, that there was very little to worry about from COVID for the young and the healthy. And they said, you don't really need to take, to, to take a, a, a risk, a chance with your health with this particular jab. And yet people did in, you know, in their millions. Uh, 17 minutes, it is just about 17 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Richie Allen Show. Daniel Ben-Ami, the journalist, will be on with me later on. Before that, as I said, Alex Mitchell will be, will be with me shortly. Um, I won't. I was going to play you some of that Republican presidential debate last night, Vivek Ramaswamy and all of that, but I won't bore you to death with that. There is a big story that um, I, I just, just about caught as I was coming on air, and it's good news, I suppose, and that is the United States is saying that the United States government has released a statement saying that Israel will begin to implement four-hour military pauses in areas of northern Gaza every day to allow civilians to flee. Now, the White House spokesman these days is a guy called John Kirby. He says this represents a significant first step. Earlier, the Israeli military said there are tactical local pauses for humanitarian aid for Gazan civilians, and uh, the military said uh, there is no ceasefire. This is not a ceasefire. It'll be a four-hour pause each day to allow people get out and to allow some aid get in. This is being reported by the United States, by the way. And um, a video has emerged, and this is according to Paul Adams, BBC's diplomatic correspondent in Jerusalem. He's saying a video has emerged um, showing uh, showing two hostages uh, addressing a camera. Uh, One of them is uh, Hannah Katzir, a woman in her 70s, she's seen sitting in a wheelchair. She was taken from the kibbutz near Oz on the 7th of October when Hamas ta- attacked Israel. The second is a video of a teenage boy from the same community. In the video, both hostages can be seen criticising Israel's uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. It isn't clear, says Paul Adams, if they're reading from a script, but they probably are reading from a script. And that is, uh, well, that, well, that's in breach of any number 
of laws and regulations around armed conflict. We'll talk more about this later on in the programme. It's coming up for 19 minutes past the hour. Uh, leave me a message via the app, via the website, richieallen.co.uk. Let me just go to the website now while I've got my finger on it there. Yeah. Okie doke. Going to be making some changes with the website really soon as well, by the way. Uh, Faisal says, driverless heavy goods vehicles. Just imagine the carnage. Uh, Jenny says, it's happening in my village, but they are calling it an international help centre. So this is where premises are basically taken over or commandeered by local authorities and made available to asylum seekers or refugees. So Jenny says it's happening. They're calling it an international help centre, a new euphemism, but it will be less than 100 people so far. I don't blame the people themselves at all. Of course, Jenny, and nor should you. It isn't their fault. Divide and conquer, you know. Uh, Craig says, while our media focuses on Russia uh, Ukraine or Israel-Palestine, there is a distinct silence on the increasing violence and unrest across many African countries. That's right, but I said it myself a thousand times over the years. When I left commercial radio, when I left uh, producing television and radio uh, shows, it was the thing that occurred to me the most when I look back at my time. The enormous power you have as a producer, you know, not in terms of what you choose to cover, but what you choose not to cover, what you choose not to talk about on any given day or any given show. It's a very good point, that, about Africa. OK, going to take a tune. Back with you in a moment. It's Thursday's Richie Allen Show, live on richieallen.co.uk, tunein.com, Fab Radio 2 in Manchester and multiple platforms around the world. From Albert Hammond. That's right, I had to double check there. I know. It's been one of those weeks, I told you. It's been one of those weeks. Uh, just connecting with Alex. Alex will be with me in a moment. Uh, that's Alex Mitchell. It'll be good to talk with him again. Um, came, came on the programme, didn't he, last year. And uh, I'm having an issue again. I, I wonder what's happening with... Um, I'm having a Skype issue, I think. I am. I'm having a Skype issue. I don't know what's happening. It's a strange week, this. This has been a mad week. People who love the astrology and all of that, they often say things like, um, Mercury is in retrograde. Is there any truth to that this week, is there? Is Mercury in retrograde? I'm going to dispense with it anyway. I, I've been speaking to my engineer. This is of no interest to you whatsoever. But I'm pretty soon just going to get rid of Skype completely because it, it, I, I, I think Microsoft, I could be wrong, but I think Microsoft is probably losing interest in Skype itself as a company because it's taking a back seat now to Zoom, isn't it? And Microsoft's own product, Teams, of course. So um, I, I'm thinking maybe the best thing to do is to get onto Zoom altogether and stay there. We'll see how it goes in any case. So, yeah, it's been reported in the Telegraph newspaper, of course, this week, uh, today even, that the High Court will hear two test cases which claim the AstraZeneca vaccine is defective. 
Now, we know that the AstraZeneca vaccine was withdrawn, wasn't it, from use by the MHRA after it was um, accepted that it had caused, um, well, caused quite a number of issues. Let me read very briefly from the article before we welcome Alex back to the programme. The Oxford AZ COVID-19 vaccine has been branded defective in a multi-million pound landmark legal action that will suggest claims over its efficacy were vastly overstated. It is being sued in the High Court in a test case by Jamie Scott, a father of two who suffered a significant permanent brain injury that has left him unable to work as a result of a blood clot after receiving the jab in April 2021. A second claim is being brought by the widower and two young children of 35-year-old Alpa Taylor who died after having the jab made by AstraZeneca, the UK-based pharmaceutical giant. And the article goes on to say the test cases could pave the way for as many as 80 damages claims worth an estimated £80 million over a new condition known as vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, or VITT. This was identified by specialists in the wake of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Now, my guest came on the programme last year. And he got his first dose of the jab in March of 2021. And not long after he arrived home, he collapsed and was rushed to hospital. He was immediately sent for surgery to remove dozens of blood clots clots in his body. But sadly, a few days later, his leg was amputated in order to save his life. Incredibly courageous he is. Let's welcome him back to the programme. It's um, Alex Mitchell. Alex, welcome back. How are you? I'm not too bad, Richie. Thank you very much for inviting me back on your show. It's a pleasure, mate. I know from reading your tweets, I know you have good days and bad days and I can't imagine having to come to terms with what you've had to deal with uh, these past two years. Listeners, when I said you were coming back on today, listeners are asking me, question one, Richie, ask him straight up. um, If these test cases go well, will that pave the way then for yourself, Alex, to take a case against AstraZeneca? Yes, it will. Um, I'm part of... Uh, there's two lawyers, two legal firms that's doing it, uh, Horsfield and Moore and Scott and Mancrief. I'm with Scott and, Mancrief, uh, Scott and Mancrief and obviously these two class actions, they are, are so, so important. They're actually historic because no civilian has ever taken a pharmaceutical company to court and successfully won because these boys have got very, very deep pockets. Isn't it funny you say that? And we might have touched on this last year because in the United States, of course, big pharmaceutical companies have been subjected to class actions for many, many years, although not as many in recent times. And in some cases have had to pay out billions of dollars in damages. So this is interesting. So it would be the first time. Now, listeners might be saying, didn't the UK government indemnify the companies against prosecution? under the emergency use authorization. So what do we know about that? And will that in any way hamper the test cases? Uh, well, the, the thing, the reason that the test cases are happening is because of the indemnity, if that makes any sense. The UK government have refused to come and acknowledge and accept that we need help and support and have, and have gold, told us and the Prime Minister himself, Rishi Shunak, stood up in the House of Commons and told us to go litigate. And this is where we are. What he didn't say to the British public and the world was that it's a civil action, so you don't get any legal aid. It's never been done before. 
and the estimated cost could be between five and seventy-five million. He doesn't tell the world that. He doesn't tell the world that it's never been done before. So therefore, if the UK government won't help us, and the AstraZeneca have blocked many of us, this is way before the court case became public, wouldn't help us and acknowledge what they've done. What choice do we have but to seek legal recourse? None of us want to do this. None of us fat to do it. But we don't have a choice. Did anybody from AstraZeneca or Oxford reach out to you in the last two years to inquire as to your well-being and, you know, to say, look, we're aware of what your doctor said, because let's 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 um, remind our listeners. Um, it's unequivocal. Um, Alex's doctors told him and they know that the COVID shot induced vaccine induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia. This is a fact, right? So has anybody ever reached out to you to, to at least acknowledge that you exist? No, in a simple word. Um, in the very beginning, myself and many others of the, vac- the AstraZeneca vaccine injured and bereaved families contacted AstraZeneca directly. And then they started asking for all our medical notes, which is fine, but then all our family's medical history. That's not fine. That's got nothing to do with my family. Um, and the minute we told them that that was against the, co- the government's policy, they deleted all the emails with us and then they blocked us on social media. And then about six months ago, in a three-week period, I received four recorded deliveries from various places across the world, offices of AstraZeneca, again asking me for my access to my medical records and access to my family history medical records. As far as I'm concerned, all they're doing is what they always do, looking for a way out. They've done it historically for God knows how many years. This company is one of the most fine companies in history for malfeasance, for bribery, corruption, falsifying data. And these people were allowed to make decisions about people at mine's health and then walk away. You know, they've made it clear they don't think that their product's got a problem. I didn't make this condition up. The world's leading hematologists discovered that, classified it and verified it. You know, so if AstraZeneca's got a problem with that, they need to take it up with the world leading hematologist. But here's the thing. AstraZeneca knew 20 years ago that the adrenals vector that they used to drive this thing was causing clotting issues and they still went ahead, Richie. These people don't care. That's clear. And it's not, you're right, these test cases are so vital, not just for the AstraZeneca fits, it's for those with Guillain-Barre syndrome, those with other conditions, autoimmune issues that are not listed. Many people have been paid out by the vaccine damage payment scheme. They're not getting represented because it's not fit. What about the people from Pfizer? Thousands and thousands of young people that we're dealing with on a daily basis and Moderna. None of these have done any good for anyone and none of them have helped anyone. And those that are left behind, they call us rare and they keep calling us rare. They say it's so, rare. Don't, oh, sorry, yes. Alex, they, they say it's rare and I've got to do this. They say, and they did give a statement to the Telegraph, they completely reject the claim that the jab um, caused the injuries in Jamie Scott and caused Alpha Taylor to die and they maintain that the jab, the AstraZeneca jab has saved millions of lives. That's their well, line on it. 
Well, I'm looking forward to the evidence that they can show that it's saved any lives, Richard. Because I'm going to go with the European Vaccine Commissioner when she was pressed on to provide the said evidence of the millions of lives saved by these vaccines. Her statement and reply was, all vaccines have saved millions of lives. We're not disputing that. We're talking about these particular vaccines. You show the shred of evidence that saves lives. There is none. I've asked for it for three years. Surely it's easy just to shut me up and show me the data that shows that these have saved millions of lives. So stop calling it rare. Stop calling it safe and effective. It's not safe and effective. If it's safe and effective, people like me wouldn't exist. People like the 81 that died of it wouldn't have died. So it's not rare. 81, when did we stop calling people, you know, using numbers for people? When did we start this? There's 81 families who have been destroyed, 465 families to that alone, nearly 1,200 to Gullen syndrome. I could go on and on and on for hours with the figures. I'm so glad it's coming out. The public can see, especially over the last couple of days where it's coming out at the UK COVID inquiry, just how bad this has been for people like me and the bereaved. I mean, life changing doesn't really cut it, does it, when it comes to losing a limb? I mean, I can't imagine it. I said this to you last year, and because um, I don't know what else to say. As an active man, and I know you were a very active man, what, what, how, how would I cope with something like that? And then it's not just that you have to cope with it. You have to cope with the terrible wrong. It would be one thing if you had an accident that you could blame nobody for something freakish happened. It would be very difficult to deal with. But a, yeah. but a grievous wrong has happened here. And can I ask about, because listeners are, the comments are flying in now, and they're asking me about, well, how culpable do you feel the regulator is? Because I remember, I mentioned earlier on, you probably won't have heard it, Alex, but back in 2020, people like um, Bakhti, uh, the German epidemiologist, was on this programme. And I was grilling him, I was doing my job, and he said, look, I wouldn't advise anybody to take any vaccines that haven't had long-term safety data, you know. And, 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 and that's the, the, the typical 10-year time frame where they monitor how the vaccine is doing, uh, they, they trial it and all the rest of it. So, so how culpable is the regulator for saying, oh, well, it's okay, let's forget about the standards and the traditions where we take 10 years to get a vaccine to market. Let's just do it now. They must have some culpability here too. Of course they do. Of course they do. And, and, you know, and the whole name, the U United Kingdom Medical Health Regulations Authority, that's somebody that decides what happens. And for the individual during rain to actually come out at one point last year and say, oh, we're enablers, not regulators. So how does how does this work? That, that that's not protecting the public, Richard. That's protecting pharmaceutical companies. And the MHRA have they been in touch with any single individual? With that, to my understanding, no. So this reading the signals, we watch the data and we look at the red flags. We've been saving for three years about the data and the signals and the red flags, and have still not approached any of us. You know, so therefore, yes, they have a massive role to play. They allowed this to be set out in this country, given the fact that they already knew that it didn't get its licence and emergency use act in America for the same data. So yes, they have a, a, 
complicit in what's going on here. I'm they told people this was safe and effective. I'm looking for the clip. I've got the clip somewhere here um, in my bank. The the June rain clip, where yeah. June, where June rain gave testimony to a Commons committee, and she was asked to explain the role of the MHRA, and rather than say our role is to turn every medicine upside down, to do everything we can to make sure it's safe, she said our job is to provide access. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've got it here. Do you want to hear it? It's only a few seconds. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard it many times. I, 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 I listeners would love to hear it, I'm sure. Yeah, you've, you've heard it thousands of times, yeah. Um, June Rain, role to provide access. Hang on. I must have a 100,000 of these types of clips. So this is the, the, the boss of the MH or a June Rain speaking before a Commons committee. And, I mean, this is horrifying. I heard this live and I grabbed it at the time. I wonder uh, if you would mind just explaining uh, to us for completeness of, uh, of the evidence that we're gathering the importance of the role of the MHRA in allowing medical products and devices to, to come into uh, uh, use. Our role is to, in a nutshell, enable access, but the uh, evidence that we require is that the benefits outweigh any risks, and therefore we take every care scientifically and in terms of our robust procedures to ensure that these standards are met. Yeah, and of course they didn't do that. Uh, first of all, we provide access, and then secondary, we, we do everything we can to make sure that it's safe, but they obviously didn't in, in, in this case. That must gall you every time you hear it. Um, it's one of many, Richard. You, you said that to second, a couple of seconds ago that you've got thousands of these in banks or folders everywhere. Yeah, I've got thousands upon thousands of them because at times I don't believe I've actually seen what I've heard, if that makes sense. I've got to go back and watch it. Yeah. Or I get too upset, I get too angry. I, I'm kind of turning into that Billy Conley joke that I've got this... TV in my, my kitchen that's got a pebble dash because I keep shouting abuse at it. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's very much so, you know. Um, and it's been very difficult because it's been, for, for some of us, it's coming up for three years now that we've been trying to get help, support, raise awareness. And you're right, many people three years ago were trying to say there was a problem, there would be a problem. And I now fully understand their anger on a deeper level for a simple reason. They've been ostracised, labelled, silenced yeah. and censored exact same way as I have been. If the BBC had done its job in Sky back in 2020, and that was all they needed to do was, instead of programmes like this, which we don't have the reach of the BBC, you never heard of the Richie Allen show back in 2020. Why would you, right? So we were putting on these epidemiologists and these experts, genuine experts, and they were saying, I wouldn't have one of these jobs. Now, if the BBC had not banned these people from the airwaves, even if they challenged them, but if they'd have brought them on and if you'd have seen them, you're obviously an articulate and a bright guy, you might very well have said, well, Jesus, maybe I don't need one of these jobs, maybe. Maybe I'll hang back a bit. But the media was just as complicit, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it's the simple message that they told at the time, and they knew totally different. They told us 
that this was going to kill everybody. This was the most deadly thing. Christ, I've never seen St. Peter's Square empty in my life. And it was empty. You know, we, we saw what the, the, the past that they did to, because they terrified everyone. So whether people... See those that stood up and never took it? They've got my instant respect. Because it takes a lot to stand up and say, no, there's something wrong here. I found out it to my cost more than anyone, I suppose, in many ways, along with the other vaccine injured and debris. You don't want to be proved right. I don't want to see another human being go through losing a limb, losing a loved one, losing what's left of their young life. You know, it's got to stop. This comment, you know, and I keep going back to it, this has been going on cyclic. We can go back to thalidomide at least. Those people are still fighting for justice. And all the other people in the families that there's only been one or two cases and have just been abandoned, they'll get no voice. This has to stop for humanity's sake. They rushed That's... out they rushed out pandemics, didn't they, about eleven or twelve years ago, thirteen years ago. And um they said pandemics was good, it was important that we've got a swine flu uh, problem. There wasn't really any swine flu problem. I can say that with a, with a clear conscience. And lots of people who took a very rushed vaccine called pandemics, they ended up with um, narcolepsy. I mean, they have previous. But can I just say this, and I'm not in any way trying to make you feel better. You said that, <laughs> you know, you said that we're brave. We're not brave. I, I'll tell you what it is. I really feel lucky. We were lucky. I'm certainly no brighter or I'm certainly no more savvy than you are, Alex. But I was lucky to have seen certain information over the years and come across certain things. If I hadn't have done, I know damn well I would have rolled my sleeve up at the local jab centre and I would have had it as well. It was terrible bad luck, really, on your behalf. Do you want to share with our listeners? I don't want to upset you. Um, oh, you're not upsetting me. Because... Again, I want to go back to it. Short of dying, this is about as severe as it gets to lose a leg. Talk to us about the daily struggle with that and how oh. how you've managed to kind of, and maybe you haven't done, maybe come to terms with it. Talk to us about the daily struggles of, you know, of living without your leg. Well, the daily struggles start, obviously, because just all your life you've had this limb that's there that did so much that subconsciously didn't realise balance, confidence, so much movement, mobility, and suddenly to find that even just as, something as simple as putting a shoe on when you've got a prosthetic leg, it's you've got to do everything a different way. So yeah, every day is a struggle because every day when you go out, especially if you're out in a wheelchair, you've got to look and try and plan ahead because not every pavement's got a down ramp or an up ramp where you need it. Things like that, traffic lights, sometimes you've got to look for doorways and things. So that's difficult. I think in my case, I suppose for me, because I was walking without sticks within three months of being amputated and I was doing absolutely incredible uh, and then had this massive relapse where I spent two years in pain 24-7, and eventually in May of this year, I decided, well, it wasn't, it was, it was, it had, they couldn't have done this operation a year and a half ago. They couldn't keep me stable. And the only option to get me walking again was to go in and have another two inches of bone removed. 
Um, however, that was very high risk and no guarantee of success. That was probably harder than actually the amputation. And I know that may sound insane, because I think at the amputation, you know, your life's in danger and they're just trying to save you. Whereas this time, you're taking the choice and you're taking the gamble. But I, it was the only way that I could see of me walking without sticks again. So far, so good. Yeah, it's the physical side's coming back. I'm working hard. It's bloody sore. Um, I don't realise, or I didn't realise just how unfit I actually am. Um, something as simple as just actually, <laughs> believe it or not, is just doing some straightforward stretching exercises. I was exhausted, but I've got to start somewhere to build the back up. The, today, yeah, I felt really flat today, and I shouldn't because obviously it's broke the news, it's in the mainstream media, it kind of looks as if maybe it's getting somewhere. And I've thought about that comment all day, that, you know, that I feel, felt empty and sadness and I feel I could go into myself. And I've realised that in many ways it wasn't that, it's actually the relief of finding that somebody's now listening, other than the general public that you see, people like yourself who have been fantastic in supporting people like us. But to actually just see and the mainstream media that AstraZeneca is getting named, it's getting called out, and the public can see it, but not they can't hide us anymore. So yeah, I, I would change it from, I think I was just emptying empty out the adrenaline of the last couple of years to get it to here. But now it's like a out to another deep breath because we've got just a bigger fight to come again. Let's not kid ourselves. I was going to ask you about that. So, please God, the test cases go well. And again, I I can be accused of bias, fair enough. Look, I know what I know. I know the jabs have done great harm. This jab has done great harm. I know this. It's uh, I see it in Salford. We, we, we know people in Salford who've been injured by the AZ jab, specifically the AstraZeneca jab. So, the test cases, and there's a green light then for people to come forward. I'm guessing at that stage, you'll, you'll need some money, won't you? Because it's going to be very expensive, I, I would imagine. Yeah, the, the costs are absolutely horrific. Um, there's a crowdfunder going just now um, to try and raise some of the legal costs just to get it started. Um, what a long, you know, at the moment... What, I've seen it, it's done incredible 24 hours. It's raised to 10, £10,000 already, which is absolutely incredible. But in essence, that's just going to cover one piece of paper. Right. It, you know, I, the reality is we're talking the court costs are going to be in the millions of pounds, not hundreds of thousands, in the millions of pounds. Well, do you know, so there's, this is, sorry, Alex, there's quite a number of conservative commentators uh, who might be asked now, I think, appropriately to put their money where their mouth is. Some of them are very wealthy. And they've, you know, were very anti-lockdown and they were very anti the jabs being pushed on people. Let's hope some of these people now with the deep pockets might come forward. People like I Farage so. and some of these people, yeah. I hope so, because this is not about me. This is not about money. For us, it really isn't. Because you could give me a billion pounds, ten billion pounds, it's not going to buy me and get me a leg back. So for me, this is not about that. This is about stopping it ever happening again. Because they've got the money to throw 
70 million pounds in court costs and lawyers because they they can pay billions in fines as they regularly do and don't care. It's nothing to them. They still make money. We don't have that kind of money. And they know that. And I'm very angry at the fact, okay, so you're shutting down every angle that people like me have got. This is wrong. And as a global, I would like to think someone out there would go, you know what, I'm going to take a punt on an underdog because these people have got what it takes. We have, we've got the medical evidence, we've got the scientific evidence, we've got irrefutable legal evidence, we just need to get the fucking money to get it into a court. Excuse my language. No, no, don't worry that's about your language. We, that's where we are. Yeah. I think, I think the people, I think, I mean, I don't know exactly how much, but I think you might be surprised if it comes to that and the go-ahead is given. You might very well be surprised at the sort of money that, you know, you might raise. I mean, I, because I, I've seen it, you know, for other issues where, where people are passionate. I think where this issue is concerned, there is a lot of passion. Like, I, I mean, this is major. I could see, I could see you and others doing pretty well when it comes to raising the funds. Is there a website you want to give people, Alex? Um, if you go onto Twitter, onto my Twitter, there's a, a link there from Fib UK with a crowdfunding link for them. Um, I hope so. I hope, because this is a global thing, Richard. This is this country, and people across the world will go, you know what, we need to band together, because when a case comes in America, we're going to have to support these people, because they're in the same boat as us. Yeah. So this is not just for the UK. This is for us globally. You know, I've never begged for anything in my life. I'm going to start. No, you won't be begging, though. I mean, this is in this is in everybody's interest, isn't it? If they've put a bad drug on the market, in this case a vaccine, which they have, we know they have, it's irrefutable. Well, they have to pay for it. And as you said, that that in itself then will maybe make people think twice the next time they rush out and rush out an emergency medicine. You know, people might yeah. have a closer look at it and say, well, hang on a second, do I really need this? And how much care has been taken in producing this medicine? So, um, but give us the Twitter handle again, Alex. Um, it's AKE2306. Let me read out a couple of messages before um, before I let you go today. Some lovely messages coming in. Gail says, Richie, tell Alex I wish him really well and that he can live the best life he can. I wish him well for the future. That's lovely. Uh, Chris says, Alex, are you back on your scooter again, he says. <laughs> He says, as a cyclist, what has happened to you, I would, of course, find it completely devastating. There's a lot of people in awe of you, really, you know, because we can only imagine. But when I imagine it, I get a cold shiver down my spine and I don't want to think any more about it. And you're dealing with it. And I think there's a lot of respect and a lot of awe amongst our listeners for the way that you're, um, you know, moving forward, you know, and... You know, no, absolutely no pun intended. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you're no, putting you're you're putting one foot in front of the other, and that's all anybody can do when things are really shit is just put yeah, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. My mother brought us up with this as what it is mantra. If you can't change it, you either deal with it or you don't. So as what it is, if you don't deal with it, it's still going to be there when you come back. But that's your choice. It's up to you. Now, I can sit and feel sorry for myself and sit in the corner and give up. But that would be the most hypocritical thing I could think of doing, isn't it? 
as a person. Plus the fact I kind of think, no, my family deserve better than this. Yeah, yeah, I get you know, that. They've been through enough to a certain extent, as all of our families have. So, yeah, I can't go back and change it. So I can either never deal with it or I can try and do something positive with it. I didn't set out to be here. I think everybody knows that. I just set out to try and find other people like me, get help and support. And honestly, at the end of the day, this is more damning on the UK government than it is on a drug company whose profits related and has known for it. Our government is basically throwing us under the bus, throwing us to the wolves and refusing to help and acknowledge us. They keep saying we exist and we're, we're rare, but they're refusing to do anything to help us and support us. And the opposition parties are just as bad, Alex, because I remember when we first spoke, I went looking for, I went back to 2020 and I went looking for any instance where somebody in Parliament raised uh, a concern about the jabs coming out without very much safety data. Not a single MP in 2020 tried to put the brakes on it. Not a single one. And I know many of them must have had their doubts. And I'm guessing a percentage of MPs in Westminster didn't have the jab because they were worried about it. And if that's the case, if you're an MP and you think this is all a bit crazy, I'm not going to have it. Well, you were put there by the people to raise that concern and to say, Prime Minister, can I just ask you, is this really necessary? And isn't this a huge risk to be taking? with experimental medicines and maybe we should be a bit more honest with people and tell them, you know, that this is maybe a bit more risky. Not a single MP in 2020. I'm going to give you the final word, by the way. And um, and I just want to, as I said to you last year and I've said to you online, I mean it, pal. I, I, I think you're, I think you're, they have a saying in Manchester. I'm, I'm obviously not Mancunian, but um, I think you're ace. You're proper ace. I think you're brilliant. Your attitude is inspiring. And uh, I've got all my fingers crossed for the two test cases and all going well then that you'll get your day in court, which I know wouldn't be for selfish reasons, but would be for the long-term good of everybody else. So I think you're brilliant. Final word to you and um, just Godspeed to you. Thank you very much, Richie. I thoroughly enjoy it. It's been very, very quick. I, I, I always like to try and finish in something positive because it's dark enough as at times. And I say it all the time, we really don't know how strong we are till it's all we've got. And always remember that you are your only light and your darkness lead your way out. We can sit and dwell on how bad this can get or we can make it better for everybody. Let's make it better for everybody. That's got to be a decent thing. That's got to be the right thing. Thank you, everybody. Take care and God bless you all. Thanks, Alex. Have a great weekend and thanks for sharing your time with us today, Alex Mitchell. Alex is on Twitter. He's at AKE, so that's Alpha Kilo Echo 2306. So it's AKE 2306. Follow him on there and say hello to him. Thanks again to Alex Mitchell. The time is fast approaching two and a half minutes to the top of the hour. It's uh, Thursday's Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. Thanks for your messages, by the way. Uh, I, I, I know Alex will go on the website later on and have a read of one or two of those. I really appreciate them. Um, Brian says, is this related to the conversation we're having? Uh, according, according to Catherine Watt, and David Martin and Sasha Latipova, 
is the US Pentagon planned, developed, made and distributed the clot shot, says Brian. I have to say, Brian, I have never heard of any of the people you've mentioned there. <laughs> I must live a sheltered uh, life. I, I don't believe for a minute the Pentagon had anything to do with it. That's just my opinion. Uh, thanks to Jenny, who says all the best, Alex. Uh, are, is there any lawyer who would be willing to work on this pro bono when it's so important for uh, humanity? I hope so, Jenny. You'd like to think so. I'm not sure. I, I'd, I'd like to know what here in the UK. I mean, I, I know a little bit about US law. Now, when I say I know a little bit about it, first of all, it's not just because I like John Grisham. No, I know a little bit about US law because I followed quite a number of um, antitrust cases in America. I followed um, litigation around medicines in America over the years. And um, you do often see people coming forward in America and saying, yeah, I this is a very important case. I'll do it for free. I'll get a team and what have you. I don't know how it works in the UK. I really don't. I know that barristers or King's Council cases, they do allocate some of their time every month to doing pro bono work. I do know that, but I don't know enough about it. But yeah, you'd like to think, wouldn't you, that somebody with a conscience would say, this is not right, you know. Baird says, I hope Alex does well, gets his case recognised, takes down AstraZeneca and gets people in prison. The thing is, Baird, nobody will go to prison, even if the test cases are successful. And then further down the line, if the 80 plus cases, which is tantamount to a class action, really, if those cases are successful, well, then money will exchange, money will change hands. There will be a settlement more than likely. But um, as Alex himself said, these companies have massive pockets. Excuse me, very deep pockets, incredibly deep pockets. You know, as he said himself, they've been fined and they've been found in breach of every regulation you can imagine over the years. They've paid out billions and billions, not just AstraZeneca, but, but um, Pfizer, all of these companies. Uh, but it doesn't stop them. I mean, they have insurance against these things, don't they? Right, back in a moment. It's Thursday's programme. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at RichieAllen.co.uk Yeah, when you think back to 2020, some of the men and women that came on this programme from Harvard University, I could name there must have been dozens who warned about particularly the mRNA shots, but also the, what you call the the traditional vaccines, you know, which were, was Moderna an mRNA or was it traditional? Uh, Johnson & Johnson was traditional, wasn't it? And AstraZeneca Oxford was traditional. But they came on and they warned and warned and warned. And the thing is they repeated time and time again. And these were not anti-vaccine people. These were people who developed vaccines. They said, look, it normally takes a decade to get a vaccine to market. 
it normally takes a decade. And even then, there will be some side effects with every vaccine like there is with every medicine. They couldn't have been clearer on this show before the first jab was given. And the first jab was given just before Christmas 2020. And then in 2021, we saw the big rollout. And these people were coming on shows like this and saying, there is no long-term safety data. This is risky. It's very risky. And they were saying, I, I won't be having it, they were saying. You know, and this is not just the reason, but one of the reasons I chose not to have it. You know, I remember pandemics. I remember it very well. I know, I know all about Gardasil, you know. And it's very difficult to get these people to admit liability. It's very difficult to get them in court. Gardasil is a jab that has been given to many girls for the human papillomavirus, right? And it has caused widespread harm. This is not my opinion, this is a fact. In Scandinavia, in Ireland, in other parts of Europe, and yet getting these people into court, getting anybody to take them on, is very, very difficult. It really is. And that is because they have very deep pockets. And, and, and not, not just in terms of what they can pay out, but they spend millions and millions of pounds lobbying, not just lobbying um, politicians in every country in the world, but they also spend these companies millions, if not billions, on advertising with television, radio uh, stations, and, of course, newspapers and magazines. Meaning that when they do, right, break the law and put bad drugs on the market, it's difficult enough to even get newsrooms to, to actually cover it and to do anything about it. So kudos to The Telegraph for coming out and saying, right, right, we're, we're, we're going to talk about this. I know you'll be screaming at me about GB News and a guy called Mark Stein, and yeah, I know that. He talked about it, didn't he? And then he ended up losing his job. Hi to Ray in Edinburgh. He says, Richie, Alex should give out the link for the legal crowdfunding site. Also, there are law firms that will take on class action test cases in a no-win, no-fee basis, he says. Okay. John says, Alex is a diamond. Thank you, John. Lovely. Calvin says, Alex is amazing. No anger in his voice. Anger is such a destructive feeling. Being able to rise above that is superhuman. What an amazing person, he says. Thank you very much uh, for your messages. Keep them coming in via the website, via the app. I'm going to say it again. Please download the app if you don't mind. Um, and do leave a review for it as well. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I see some of you are surprised that I've not heard of certain people. Yeah, this is the thing. I've had thousands and thousands of people on this program over the years. But uh, what I don't do, because I don't have any time, is I don't spend a lot of time watching podcasts, or particularly independent media ones, because I just don't have the time to do it. And I need a bit of downtime as well. All right, music from The Clash then. Now, the journalist and broadcaster, Daniel ben Ami will be with me in a few minutes' time. You don't want to miss him. It is uh, just gone seven minutes past the hour of six o'clock. That's The Clash and Rock the Casbah on The Richie Allen Show. Uh, thanks for all your messages for Alex. I'll forward them on a little bit later on. Uh, so I will, uh, and, and top man he is too. Now, my next guest is a very accomplished journalist. He's written for and appeared for well, every newspaper, every television and radio station you care to think of. He's done some writing lately for Spiked Online. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's also 
also set up a website, which I'm very interested in. It's called The Radicalism of Fools. So look for it at radicalismoffools.com. He set it up to help develop a better understanding of anti-Semitism, right? And it stands for, amongst other things, an unequivocal attachment to free speech. Anti-Semitic bigotry should be challenged rather than driven underground. Their opposer, Daniel, is opposed to identity politics as a key driving force behind contemporary anti-Semitism and also understanding that Islamism, as opposed to Islam, is a serious threat to Jews today. Let's welcome to the programme uh, Daniel ben Ami. Daniel, welcome to our show. How are you? Uh, thanks, Richie. I'm... A bit shaken up by what's happening, but fine and uh, delighted to be with you. Well, thanks for coming on. And we've got as much as we as you'd like to spend with me till the top of the hour. So we have loads of time. I always say that to first time guests. We have plenty of time uh, to chat about some of these things. So you've written a really interesting and provocative, I would say, article for Spiked where, and of course, I'm only going to read the headline, but I have read the article. From the yeah. river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You say it's a coded call for genocide. Now, before you tell me why you feel that, I was interested in something Douglas Murray said to Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk TV today. He said that half the people, this is what he said now, half the people chanting that probably couldn't tell you what river or what sea is being spoken about. So in reality, they're maybe not really calling for genocide, they're just chanting a slogan. What do you reckon to Douglas Murray's comment? No, I make the same point, exactly the same point in my article, that there are what I would call naive people on the demonstration who don't know what it means. They just kind of go along, maybe they're first year university students or whatever, they go along and they chant it and they, they don't know the meaning of it. I think that's that's true. There's an element of the protest that fits into that category. Right. And so what do we do with those people then? He also went on to say on another programme, in fact, he spoke with Piers Morgan last night, and Morgan made the point that not everybody is chanting this particular offensive slogan. Uh, and and Murray said to him something along the lines of, you know, if you were out marching for something and you were, I don't know, surrounded by people or some people on that march were shouting something offensive, wouldn't you just leave and go away and do your own thing? Do you agree with that? Do you do you? Do, do you agree with the, the notion of guilt by association? So if you're there marching because you're concerned about the rising death toll in Gaza and you just want peace, that you're somehow tainted by somebody who says death to Jews. And I know one or two of these comments have been made by people, I would call them idiots, but that you're somehow tainted by that. Would you agree with Murray? Uh, I, I would certainly discourage people, including people who sympathise with the Palestinians, uh, not to go on those marches. Uh, and what I normally say to people, because there's very clearly an Islamist element on the march. So there are clearly people chanting, usually in Arabic, uh, for death to the Jews. Uh, and then there's a larger number of people who are chanting from the river to the sea. And what I will say to people is you don't need to read you know, what they might conceive of as Israeli propaganda. You don't need to be able to speak Arabic or Farsi, whatever. All you need to do is to look at what Hamas and other Islamist organizations say themselves, what they, in their own words, translated into English, state as their goals. And they state very explicitly their goal is to murder Jews. So it's in the Hamas covenant uh, from 1988. It's never, been, despite what some might tell you, it's never been rescinded. 
very recently, about a couple of weeks ago now, a Hamas leader said that he wanted to repeat what happened on the 7th of October again and again and again. So this is a public statement translated into English. Similarly, uh, Hezbollah, Hezbollah in Lebanon have said publicly, translated into English, what they would like to do is do what Hamas did on the 7th of October, but do it dozens of times over. So all you need to do is to listen to their public statements. And this is what the Islamists stand for. It should be very, very clear to people. There's really no excuse for not knowing about it. These will be a minority, I think, in the protest, though. I attended a protest, not as a protester. I'm a journalist. I'm completely impartial. I am. Well, I'm not. I'll explain why in a minute, but I don't attend protests as a participant. I happened to be in Media City when there was a protest a couple of weeks ago and I observed it. And I'm an honest um, broker. You know, if I'd heard anything or seen anything that I didn't like, I would say it. I met quite a few Jewish people there and people I've met once or twice over the years at at other protests where I was covering. It, It seems that the protests are massive. And from what I can see, the majority of people protesting, a lot of these are all lefties that have always been against the, the occupation, Daniel. And I think it's very unfair. I'm not accusing you of being unfair. I don't see you doing it specifically. But the legacy media is really trying to paint a picture that these are hate marches. I don't see hate marches. I see people like me who are completely opposed to violence wherever it happens. And by the way, I'm, I'm sure you did your homework. I was unequivocal about what happened on October 7th. I can't bear it. There's no justification for it, right? There isn't. Um, But I I think the great majority of these protesters are ones who always go out whenever there's an escalation. And right, they might be biased. They might be taking, they might be wearing, I don't know, green and black and red tinted glasses maybe. They might be taking a Palestinian position. But I don't believe they're hate marchers. And I do not believe these people hate Jews. What, What say you? Well, I've also been on one of those marches, uh, like you, as an observer. So I have seen one firsthand. And I've already accepted that there are some naive people on the demonstration who've just gone along because, for example, quite understandably, they feel real compassion for what's happening to the civilians in Gaza. So I completely get that. But I do think that with the uh, more experienced, more mature people, I think there's no excuse I mean, the, the, the organization coming, the march coming up next Saturday, for example, is organized by a group called the Friends of Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa being a, a reference to the kind of key mosque uh, in Jerusalem, one of the holiest Muslim sites in Jerusalem. So it's being organized by the Friends of Al-Aqsa. And those people, for example, those old leftists you refer to, they've got no excuse for not knowing what Hamas stands for. Uh, they They... It's very clear that there have been people calling for the killing of Jews on those marches. I don't think they're the majority of people on those marches, but there is that element on the marches. It's very clear what the Islamists believe in, because they say so openly time and time and time again. So I would say the more experienced people, you know, as opposed to the kind of 18-year-old university students who are on a march for the first time, they've really got no excuse for not knowing what Islamism stands for and understanding that is a very central element in these marches. We have laws against calling for the death of anybody, right? We, we, we do. I, yeah. would, I, I would put the ball back in the court of the Metropolitan Police. If somebody is shouting death to Jews, um, as God is my witness, if there is a God, that man or woman should be taken out and should be arrested. 
because we have laws against that. I interviewed a lady a couple of years ago on this program. Her dad had made some radio programs in, in Cornwall. You probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, Graham Hart, he went to prison um, because he, you know, said that we have to get rid of the Jews. And his daughter's a really lovely lady. And we had her on and we had a chat about other things. And I said, look, um, I, I didn't necessarily think he, he should have gotten a custodial sentence that time. But he certainly should have received a conviction and a very strong warning. And if he did it again, he should have went to prison because he shouldn't be calling for the death of anybody. We have these bloody laws. We've seen people go to prison. So where are the police then, Daniel? Why are they not going in there and taking out what I believe to be a very extreme, very, very tiny minority and saying, right, you're nicked, son. Off you go. Well, if I, if I can just first answer the kind of implication of what you've said, I mean, the, it is, you're quite right to say that it's illegal in Britain to, say, uh, kill the Jews or I support Hamas. Hamas is a, you know, the Islamist group in Gaza or, uh, is a prescribed organisation, so you're not allowed to say that. Uh, so there are some people who flaunt the law and do kind of call for the death of Jews. But also, if you look at the Islamist websites, for example, there's one called Five Pillars, which is, I don't think they question my description, at least, of it as, as an Islamist website. Uh, they make the point that no, you're not allowed. To, you're not allowed to call for support for Hamas. You're not allowed to say death to the Jews, which is precisely why they favour these kind of coded calls, like from the river to the sea, which in the abstract is very kind of ambiguous. It could mean this. It could mean that. So for them, they're very clear what it means, but they're also quite happy about the ambiguity because it means they can say, well, you know what. What we're saying is, you know, very innocent, and we just uh, we just want freedom in the land, uh, which I think is a really bad faith argument because I don't think they really believe, you know, the, the kind of hardcore Islamists. They don't believe that, uh, and the leftists should know better. They know what it really means. I I work with Jewish people in Manchester, and um, there might be a wry smile your end. I can't see. Obviously, this is radio, but I've very but I've got very close Jewish friends as well. Um, yeah. They're different. Uh, Jewish people to me are no different than, than uh, Irish people, the Christians. They're no different. The ones I know, they're, they all, they're all different how they think about anything. And some of the Jewish people I know, they're indifferent when it comes to Gaza. Some are very much pro uh, the state of Israel and the right of Israel to do whatever it takes to secure um, its border. And then others are very much against Israel and they would turn up to these marches. Now, what, what, how, how do you, as, as a Jewish man, view Jewish, professional Jewish people who they take the social media, just as I've done, and they, in the strongest possible terms, condemn what's happening in Gaza now? Um, many of them refer to it as genocide. You know that. Jews against genocide. They say it's clearly a genocide. Um, I, I, I've, I'll admit this. I'll admit this. To be a bit provocative, because I like to start an argument. Not, I don't like to, to insult or to hurt people, but I like to start a conversation. I've suggested that some of these Jews who go out and strongly say we're against the Israeli government, what's happening is a genocide. It's almost like a kind of a, kind of a perverse anti-Semitism that these people are completely ignored. They are largely by the BBC, Channel 4 and ITN. How do you feel about it? Because there are lots of Jewish people who strongly condemn the occupation and what they see as a genocide. There are, and in fact, my last spiked article, so not the one you've just referred to uh, about from the river to the sea, but the one before, yeah. was precisely about this question. Uh, so there certainly are Jews who 
not just feel sympathetic for the, to the Palestinians or critical of Israel, which I think both things are fine, but who go further than that and kind of talk about Israel committing a, a genocide in Gaza and implicitly and in some cases explicitly support Hamas. Uh, and I would say in a way it's not that surprising because Jews, like you say, in many respects, they're like any other people, uh, like Irish people. You can get right-wing Irish people, left-wing Irish people, centrist Irish people from a political perspective. And there are Jews who go along with this kind of what you might call a woke agenda. I mean, you might not like that label, but the kind of they're very strongly attached to identity politics. So it's really not that surprising that there's an element within the Jewish community that, uh, which is a minority element, it's a small element, but does go along with this kind of argument. And sometimes they feel, because they feel it's a kind of act of rebellion against their elders, they go along with it even more strongly than other people might. So, yeah, it, it's true that there's an element in the Jewish community that goes along with the kind of sometimes explicitly pro-Hamas argument, sometimes not so explicitly. But that doesn't mean they're right. I, I think they're wrong, just as I assume, I don't know exactly where you stand on, for example, Irish political issues, but you obviously disagree with some Irish people on key questions and agree with agree with others. It's yeah. not that surprising, really. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't know how much you know about the show. I mean, I'm expecting later on you will get some stick for coming on because I'm, I've been labelled as anti-Semitic because of some of my guests in the past. I've mm -hmm. had Holocaust deniers on, well, one, I think, maybe two, and, yeah. and others, and they were robustly challenged, of course. You, you wouldn't expect anything sure. less of somebody who calls himself a journalist. But I, I'm going to try and sum up my position because my, my I'm only interested in hearing my guests, not in repeating to my listeners what they've heard me say a million times. So because you don't know me, um, I look, I've written about and talked about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Declaration. I yeah. believe that how the State of Israel came into being was terribly wrong, right? I believe that. I fundamentally believe that. I believe that the Nakba was a crime against humanity. I really do believe that. I believe mm -hmm. it was the most awful way to begin a country. You know, people were living there and expelling 700,000 plus. You know all this, but I'm just telling you this is how I feel. Sure. And I think subsequently what we've seen in decades, and you're going to say I'm biased, and maybe I am, is a real, I'm going to say apartheid against the Palestinian people of that region. Some unspeakable things. We know what Amnesty has said. We know what Human Rights Watch has said in the last couple of years about the history of the region. Um, the campaigns in 2006 and 2014, what's happening now. That's how I feel about it. I would be open always honest to say, yeah, I would support the rights of the people of Palestine and I would lay a lot of what is happening, the Blameford, at the feet of Israeli governments. Now, please don't for a minute think that that's just a backhanded, cowardly way of justifying October the 7th, because it isn't. I've been asked this already. That's how I feel about it. I do believe what's happening in Gaza today is genocidal and it is a crime against humanity and it kills me to know that it's going on and to know that there are a lot of people in Israel who don't like it and who oppose it. And there are, there are a lot of Jews, and I'm presuming you don't like it either. So that's where I am on it, just giving you the heads up as to my thinking on it. Maybe it's my old lefty background. So what do you say to that? Is that, is that anti-Semitic to feel like that, to blame Israel for what's going on? No, I mean, I, I wouldn't accuse you of being anti-Semitic. And you've raised lots of different points, uh, including the Nakba and the, the creation of the State of Israel, which I'm happy to talk about. You, you said we've got almost an hour, so yeah. maybe we can talk about them later. But just to talk, to begin with, by talking about the, uh, 
present situation, uh, I think you have to understand Israel is not facing a national liberation movement for the Palestinians. I, I think, I support the Palestinians in the sense I support the Palestinian right to self-determination. I think they, have, they should have rights, they have a right to self-determination. But Hamas is not a national liberation movement. What Israel is facing is a movement in Gaza, or based in Gaza, not entirely, not only in Gaza, that says, not, not only did what it did on the 7th of October, but has said publicly it will do it again and again and again and again. A movement in the north, uh, in Lebanon, which said it will do the same thing on dozens of times the scale. Uh, been, there's also Islamist movements in Yemen, which you might think is a long way away, but they've also tried to fire missiles on Israel uh, in, the, you know, in the last uh, month. Uh, there are also Hamas activists on the West Bank, which is another complicated question. So I would say Israel, you've got to understand Israel is facing an existential threat, a threat to its existence. And in that sense, it has a, not just a right, but a duty to defend its citizens against people who say, this is not the kind of Israel's interpretation, they openly say they want to slaughter Israel's citizens. So you've got to ask yourself, under those circumstances, what, what can Israel do? There's no easy solution to the problem. doesn't mean that my heart doesn't bleed for the civilians in Gaza, because it does, but I think Israel does have to defend its citizens against what is a openly mortal threat. But doesn't the occupation itself and the crimes Israel... And I, do you know, I hate to talk in terms of Israel says or China says. We're talking about governments. We're not talking about bodies of people, obviously. But yeah. doesn't the occupation and the dreadful things... I, I mean, I don't want to do this because you know this. You know what amnesty has found after four years. I mean, it couldn't have said it any, in any stronger terms. You know, um, a couple of years ago, the thousand being held without trial torture, the ill-treatment of detainees, including children, killing people with impunity, all this stuff that's gone on, doesn't that make it inevitable? I mean, what, what, what could the Palestinians do? I mean, what, would, what, what could any people do? I mean, the UN says that you have some sort of a right, don't you, to, to, to struggle or to take up arms to defend yourself against an illegal occupier. So, so my point would be, the occupation itself, the nature of it, the barbarity and the brutality of it, um, lends to groups, crazy groups like Hamas, saying things that I obviously don't agree with, that we need to wipe out every Jewish man, woman and child. Of course, um, I, I, I could never condone or tolerate that. But, but what else is there other than terrorism out of that? I could talk all day about Northern Ireland back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there are grounds to criticise Israeli policy, which I'm quite happy to talk about. But I think I don't think you're right in the way you pose the question, because even if someone is facing a really, really terrible uh, situation, they still have a choice. They don't have to go and slaughter uh, you know, loads and loads of people. They're not forced to do it by the, even if their circumstances are terrible. They're not forced to do it. And as it happened, you talk about Ireland. I mean, I'm sure you know a lot more about the Irish struggle than, than me, but I supported, you know, in the, uh, in the 80s, what I saw as an Irish struggle to self-determination. Uh, and then, But there, there were grounds to criticise the IRA. Certainly in retrospect, we can see, and at the time, you could say there were problems with uh, some of the kind of tactics used by the IRA. But it was never the 
stated goal of the IRA to wipe out the Protestants in Northern Ireland. You know, I, I know that Protestants were killed in bombings and so on, but they never, the IRA never said uh, our goal is to slaughter all the Protestants in Northern Ireland. So I'm not saying this to kind of retrospectively defend the IRA, but no, I hear you. I hear you. That, that would be the comparison. I hear you, but they did unspeakable things. They blew up pubs in Guildford. They blew yeah, up pubs yeah, in Birmingham, yeah. didn't they? They blew up. And this is why, as an Irish Republican, I could never support them. And I never did support them as a kid. You know, as a kid who would hang around the Socialist Workers' Party and, and the Labour Party in Ireland, and even Sinn Féin in, in Waterford, it must be said. But I could never condone it. You know, sure, where, sure. Where, whereas if you were using guerrilla tactics against the military. Now, I've said this, and I've gotten into trouble for saying this. I've no time for Hamas. But historically, if the armed resistance in Gaza were targeting um, military structures and even military personnel, I would hate it because I hate violence, and I mean that. But I could, I could hear an argument for it. What I will never hear an argument for is the slaughter of civilians. And I've been disgusted as well when I've seen people say, oh, well, these civilians, they did their two years in the IDF. That's just rubbish. I have no time uh, for any of that at all. But the fact is... We haven't even gotten around to talking about what's happening today. I'm getting bombarded by messages here. You won't be surprised. But let me just remind our <laughs> listeners. Let me remind our listeners. You're listening to Daniel Ben Ami. Daniel's a very accomplished journalist and broadcaster. Um, he's writing a lot for Spiked Online these days. And uh, if I can bring it up again, I'll bring it up uh, now. Um, a website that you should check out, that you might want to check out. Um, Daniel, give us the website quickly. It's radic radicalismoffools.com. That's the one, isn't it? Exactly. Radicalismoffools.com. Yeah. Whatever happened on October 17th, and again, this is not whataboutery. So Guterres says it doesn't happen in isolation. He got hammered for saying that. I happen to think it's true. The response to it. Now, I heard the BBC challenge the UN, various UN bodies. They challenged them, um, Médecins Sans Frontières. They challenged everybody and they said, well, how can we believe the Hamas medical authority? How can we believe their death numbers? Because they're murderers, Right. Now, these organisations, every one of them said, well, actually, whatever Hamas might be, we've gone in regularly over the years, and when we've done our homework, when we've done our retrospective investigations, we found that Hamas Health Authority has been telling the truth, so we believe the numbers. Now, Daniel, I, I, this, this isn't, you don't have to answer for this, because you're not doing it. I don't want to give you the impression that, you know, Jews have to answer for this. I don't believe so, but... 10,000 plus dead and 4,000 children. That's an abomination. I mean, that's evil incarnate, in my opinion. And there is no excuse for it whatsoever. And I'll say no more on that. What's your response to that? Well, I, I think Hamas bears the moral culpability for that. It's, of course, it's a tragedy that 10,000 people have been killed. Uh, but I think Hamas and other Islamist groups have put Israel in an impossible position because it has to defend itself but also of that assuming that 10,000 or so figure is correct may, you know may, it may well be I don't know but some of those probably several thousand are Hamas fighters not all of them but certainly some of them are uh, some of them are the result of uh, Hamas missiles because a lot of their missiles fall short and uh, kill Palestinians uh, a lot of them are the result of the fact that it's true. I mean, Hamas says we will use any means necessary to uh, defeat Israel. So they, they're, they're very blasé about using human civilians as human shields. 
against the Israeli military. Uh, so I think, yeah, those 10,000 deaths are a tragedy, but I would say the moral culpability is with Hamas and is with the Islamists. Let me read you something written by Norman Finkelstein. I'm guessing you probably don't like him. I've interviewed him many times. I shouldn't say that. I don't mean to be idiotic about this, um, putting words in your mouth. I've interviewed him many times over the years and had serious, you know, um, robust exchanges with him. I always take the other, the devil's advocate position. Um, he's a curmudgeonly, um, I won't use an expletive, but, yeah. he's, but he's always interesting. Yeah, he's, he is. He, he said, uh, in his opinion, this is Israel's attempt to seize the opportunity to impose a final solution to the Gaza question. This has plagued Israel since at least 1992, when then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin expressed his desire that Gaza sink into the sea. It seems pretty clear now that Israeli planners initially hoped to expel Gaza's population into the Sinai, but that possibility was squashed by the President of Egypt. At present, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty among Israeli ruling elites as to what exactly they want to do with Gaza long term. So obviously, he's winding people up by using terminology like final solution. Yeah. But um, does he have a point that, right, whatever happened on October 7th, the opportunity is now being taken to flatten Gaza, leave it completely uninhabitable, so that Israel can take permanent possession of it in, well, from here on out. What do you reckon to that? Well, first, I should just say that I did do a debate with Norman Finkelstein, which is on my website, my Radicalism of Fools website. Although it was more on free speech, it wasn't directly on the question of uh, Israel and the Palestinians. And we did agree on, in, in relation to free speech, we actually agreed on quite a lot of points. Uh, I mean, I think his use of the term final solution there is abominable. Uh, because he's making a direct comparison with the Holocaust. Uh, I think he's right that Israel really isn't sure what it's going to do. So assuming, and obviously this is a huge assumption, but assuming Israel does militarily defeat Hamas, which it probably will eventually because it has overwhelming military force, Israel is really not sure what it will do next. I think that that final part of how you quote him, I think, is true. But the thrust of what he said to me seems like a giant conspiracy theory. I mean, Israel would much rather that what happened on the 7th of October didn't happen with, you know, 1,400 killed, not all Israeli citizens, because there were some tourists and foreign workers and so on, but overwhelmingly Israeli citizens were, were killed. Uh, it's something that Israel would not have wanted, in, partly in terms of its citizens being slaughtered, but also the kind of huge, uh, not just economic, but military and social and emotional costs of going to war. So I think it's very conspiratorial. Israel would far rather not be in the position it's in now, but it finds itself in this terrible position. Daniel Benami is our guest. Um, there's an, an enormous amount of comments coming in through the app and through the website. Um, some not complimentary, others a little bit more so. Um, let me read out one or two of them. Sasha says, it would be an awful lot easier for Israel if it just stopped oppressing people. That's uh, Sasha. And Daniel has been on to say, I was going to bring it up. You mentioned it. I was going to bring it up. I brought it up with our mutual friend, Stuart. Look, the Times of Israel did a very interesting piece on the material support given to Hamas by, by the Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu's approach to Hamas, which was to support it at the expense of the Palestinian Authority, because it made it more difficult then 
for the two-state solution to be advanced. So should Israelis be, you know, reserving some of their, I don't want to say hostility, but some of their blame for what's gone on for the Netanyahu government and Netanyahu himself? Uh, there's certainly good grounds to criticise the Netanyahu government. Uh, I don't think that excuses Hamas, because I think regardless of the bad policies of the Israeli government, Hamas is a murderous organisation. In terms of the funding, this is slightly confused, and I'm actually planning to write an article about it when I have time, probably in about a week's time. So factually, and I don't think the kind of key facts are disputed, What's happened in recent years is that Israel has allowed money from Qatar, you know, this kind of small, rich Arab state, so, uh, which supports Hamas. So Israel has, obviously until the 7th of October when things changed, it's allowed money from Hamas to come in into Gaza to keep on propping up the kind of Hamas infrastructure in Gaza, because Hamas is not just a military organization, you know, runs the kind of hospitals, the health ministry, and so on. Uh, and Israel allowed that because it didn't want the whole infrastructure in Gaza to collapse. But it was also a way, I don't think it was a kind of a way of stopping a two-state solution specifically, but it was a way of kind of containing Palestinian aspirations, you know, uh, a kind of devil's pact with Hamas, uh, for Israel and Hamas together, to contain Palestinian aspirations and Palestinian freedom. Uh, but I draw the opposite conclusion from that, the, the conclusion lots of people draw, which is that Hamas is certainly an anti-Israel organization, but it's also an organization against Palestinian freedom. Hamas, in its own doctrine, does not believe in Palestinian national self-determination. It's not a nationalist organization. Hamas's goal is to create an Islam, Islamized Palestine so a Palestine controlled just really by the uh, Muslim community, uh, which means slaughtering and subjugating the Jews, as an interim step to creating an international Islamic order, what some people call a caliphate, you know, as part of an international Islamist order. So Hamas is actually against Palestinian national self-determination and has sometimes been willing to collaborate with Israel against Palestinian national self-determination. So I take that funding point to, as a confirmation of my argument, that Hamas is not an argument, it's anti-Israel, but it's not a pro-Palestinian organization. It's a very anti-Palestinian organization against Palestinian national aspirations. That's the point Tal Schneider made in her really interesting article the day after. Uh, the, 8th, the 8th of October, you probably, probably read it, the headline, Netanyahu propped up Hamas for years. Now it's blown up in our faces. His policy of treating Hamas as a partner at the expense of Abbas and Palestinian statehood has resulted in wounds that will take Israel years to heal from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all filthy yeah, and murky, right. isn't Clearly it? Israel is now regretting its policy. In retrospect, it was a very stupid policy. It should have been clear at the time it was a stupid policy. But, uh, you know, it wanted to maintain stability in Gaza and in the short Term, it worked to some extent, but obviously in the longer term, we can say in retrospect, it hasn't worked. The United Nations has passed, I don't know how many resolutions over the years against the settlements. And yet we, and I know this to be true because I, I, I've seen evidence of it. Yet long before October 7th, even earlier this year in the spring, 
we, we learned about terrible clashes in the West Bank and, and Ramallah and places where Palestinians basically having their homes stolen from them and in some cases shot while in the background the authority, the Israeli police or or whoever is you know supposed to be looking after the rights of the person who owns the home is just standing and, and looking on. Mm-hmm. This is horrendous, isn't it? I mean, again, I'm not asking you to apologise for this or I'm not suggesting that Jewish people have to take ownership of this. I'm not. I always say the same thing whenever there's a suicide bombing. You know, I always say, uh, Daniel, that the idea that British Muslims have to somehow out themselves and go public and disavow it is bullshit and dangerous. It's a dangerous way to, to go to make assumptions about people. So I don't. But these are the things you see that they very rarely get mentioned in the media, maybe a passing article in The Guardian. And these are the things that are going on day in, day out. These are, this is the reality for the Palestinian people. And unless this stops, and unless you get a government that's going to take notice of UN resolutions and, you know, take notice of what people at the International Court of Human Rights are saying about these things, um, nothing is ever going to change, is it? Ever, in our lifetime. Well, again, you've raised a lot of points, but I'll just try and focus on, on the situation in the West Bank and maybe the situation in the West Bank now uh, and yeah. more generally over the past two years. So what has happened... So it is true, as you've said, that uh, a lot of settlers, not, not all settlers by any means, but there's certainly an element within the settler community that has harassed and sometimes even killed Palestinians. That's true, and they should be criticised for that. Uh, there's also a broader political context, which I'm not using at all to excuse that, because what you have at the moment is that the, I mean, the West Bank is a kind of patchwork of different areas, some controlled by directly by the Israelis, some by the Palestinian Authority, which is basically Palestinian nationalists, and some under joint control. So what you've had over the past two years, running up to the 7th of October, was that the Palestinian Authority, which is really uh, run by the old Palestinian nationalists, you know, like Mahmoud Abbas is the president of the Palestinian Authority, and he's in his late 80s, I think. Uh, they kind of more or less control the Palestinian areas, but are kind of losing it. They're, they're widely regarded by Palestinians, quite rightly, as kind of old and corrupt. I think that's a correct uh, understanding. So you have Islamists, including Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other kind of grassroots groups fighting to take control over those areas of the West Bank. So some of what you see in the West Bank, uh, and this is often left out of media accounts, is Israeli forces fighting Islamists in the West Bank who have either attacked Israeli targets or trying to attack Israeli targets. So that's happening. I think that's true. But it's also the case, as I said, that there are certainly instances of settlers uh, attacking Palestinians and there are instances of soldiers standing by and not doing anything. So as with all of these things, or most of these things, it's quite a complex situation, more complex than the kind of instant news discussion usually allows. Is is labelling, when, when, when Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and others said that Israel is an apartheid state, is that fair? based on the blockade, the conditions that we've spoken about the Palestinians have to live in. Is that a fair characterization of, of Israel? 
No, it's very misleading. Uh, I mean, there, there are grounds to criticise Israel, but no. And in, in fact, Amnesty doesn't believe it. And I've written an article about this because if you read Amnesty International's report accusing Israel of being an apartheid state, the words it used, I mean, this is from memory, but more, more or less the exact words are something like, we're not saying it's analogous to South Africa, uh, you know, up until the mid-1990s, which is astonishing. So on the one hand, the headline is Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and other organisations are saying Israel is an apartheid state. And then they are saying, this is not me saying this, they are saying it's not analogous to South Africa. Because you think saying it's an apartheid state is saying it is analogous to South Africa. But they're saying, no, it's not analogous to South Africa. And it, it, so what they do is that they redefine apartheid to mean something else. They redefine apartheid to mean systematic discrimination. And then they, they occasionally apply that to Myanmar, or what used to be Burma, but almost exclusively apply that label to Israel. But if you know anything about the world, which you know, I'm sure you do, it's not a rhetorical point, you'll, you'll know that there are lots and lots of countries in the world that to some degree, often to a very great degree, discriminate against different elements of their population. Yeah. And, and yet Israel is singled out as the apartheid state. And I think it's not really a political category when they use it. It's a moral category. They're saying Israel is somehow a particularly evil state. It's the kind of moral epitome of evil. And that's when people use the term apartheid state, that's what they mean. It's not an attempt to grasp with what kind of society Israel is and what its real faults are. Well, Daniel, discuss. It's just a, a label saying that Israel is evil. But isn't that gaslighting, though? This is something I wanted to bring up with you. I, I listened to Baroness Kate, uh, sorry, Baroness Claire Fox today talk, yeah. talking about, you know, she was basically categorising thousands of people as meaning. And we've seen a lot of this in as meaning what I believe they mean. And we've seen a lot of this, right, in, in recent weeks. And I, I, I really get pissed off by this because I get accused of it from time to time, this idea that Israel is held to a higher standard. It isn't. And um, well, we live in this world where, you know, the truth exited stage left years ago. We live in a post-fact world, I think, where people can say anything about anybody without consequences, particularly in this social media lunatic world we live in where everything is a tweet and then it's gone a minute later and you can't have a face-to-face -face with anybody. I've yeah. spent, I've been doing this particular radio show since 2014 and I can swear on it. I've spent as much time talking about my... Um, um, how do I how do I phrase this? The problems I have with Iran, the problems I have with North Korea, the problems I have with what goes on in China. This is a kind of gaslighting that I can't stand. This idea that you know Israel is is held up, and you know what? Even in, even in some issues, even in some areas, if it is, isn't it a kind of a backhanded compliment, really? You know that people might expect Israel to behave in a better way than the government of Iran or the government of North Korea, maybe. And maybe that, whether we say apartheid or not, it's just simply semantics. Because if you look at what Amnesty says, forget about the term apartheid. If you look at what it accuses Israel of doing, well, it's horrific. And I think it's true. You know, holding thousands in detention without trial, um, torturing kids, you know, all the things, all the horrible things that we see. It doesn't matter apartheid or not. This stuff actually does go on. And the idea that we hold Israel to a higher standard, I certainly don't, I never have done, 
But maybe maybe I ought to start holding Israel to a higher standard. Maybe. Because Israel should know better. You know, the government of Israel, many of them will be descendants of people who, um, I've been to Dachau. I've been to that God-forsaken place. I was at Auschwitz. So they'll know people who were imprisoned, interned, beaten, shot, gassed. So maybe we should hold Israel to a higher standard, maybe. What do you think? Well, no, I mean, I think Amnesty is guilty of gaslighting because if you accuse a country of being an apartheid state, but then acknowledge it's, if you read the small print, which hardly anyone does, acknowledge it's not analogous to South Africa, uh, I think that's gaslighting. I mean, I think, and we probably need several days to discuss this, there are all sorts of problems with Israeli society, which I'm more than happy to discuss. But I think the problem is that if you read the... uh, anti-Israel, what the anti-Israel activists write, they don't try and get to grips with the kind of real, what I call flesh and blood Israel, as a state which does have problems, does have faults. They're not trying to get to grips with that, which I'm more than happy to do. They are using these things like apartheid state, colonialism, imperialism, Nazism, to hold Israel up. It's not even just a double standard. It's the way they talk about Israel is to hold it up as a kind of as the epitome of evil. That's the way they see it. And that, I think, is anti-Semitic. If you, I'm not accusing you of that at all. But the, the way the activists talk about it, I think it is anti-Semitic. Whereas if you start having a sensible discussion about what Israel is like and its problems and faults, that's a different question. But just to wrench things out of context and talk about it in the way they do, I think that is really problematic. But you can't have a sensible discussion, so you can't, because... Israel is a pariah state in terms of, you know, the international community because yeah. it's condemned time and time again by Western governments for the things it does. And by it, of course, again, we mean the military, we mean the government. Israel's a complex place. I've never been there. I tried to go there a few years ago. I was told under no circumstances would I be, would I, would I be given a visa to go there. I said, fair enough, right? Okay. Um, okay, fair enough. I wanted to visit the place. I wanted to try and get to the West Bank as well and kind yeah. of see for myself um, because I don't like to be told what to think. I like to try and kind of find out for myself. But So that's why it's, that's why it's so difficult. And I have sympathy with people, right? I look, I'm, I'm going to come clean with you. I've used, at the beginning of this, I tweeted out, and I've fallen out with a couple of mates over this. I tweeted out that um, what the Nazis did in, uh, in Germany um, is, is going to happen now in Gaza. And of course, that wound people up. Um, that's a whole other discussion, not about that term, but about free speech and not always taking people literally. And we're far more than just a couple of tweets or just a couple of sentences that we make. But that was a point I made. I don't often use that term, but but I do often say, you know, Jewish people ought to know better. And that's not unfair, that. It's not. I've interviewed Holocaust survivors. I've met them. The stories are horrific. Jesus Christ Almighty. And I believe what's happening in Gaza is horrific. And while I'm willing to accept because I can't disprove what you said, okay, Hamas will put weapons here and yeah, maybe they'll human shields, maybe. Okay, I'm, I'm open to that. But to me, it's still indiscriminate bombing. And it's the slaughter of thousands of people who, who, who didn't attack Israel on, on October 7th and maybe don't support Hamas. And I think Jews in Israel, not you, Daniel, but they ought to know better than that and they should be ashamed of themselves. And that's why I... I'm coming around to maybe we should hold them to a higher standard. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I always mm-hmm. do this. 
we, we've got about three minutes before we've got to get out. I hope you'll come back to talk about free speech as a completely separate issue another time because I've got a huge issue with it. What's happening to the media in this country and the independent media and the online harms bill. I'd love to get your thoughts on all of that. But um, that's how I feel about it. They ought to know better. You're getting the final word. You can take two or three minutes if you want to have the final word and then I won't come back again when you're gone because I don't do that. And I've enjoyed speaking with you, by the way. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, you know, it's been very good speaking to you. And I think you have been very, I mean, I don't agree with everything you've said. You've been very open-minded. What would I say? Maybe just a couple of bullet points. I mean, I don't accept the, uh, obviously don't accept the equivalence of the Holocaust at all. I, I think, as I've already argued, uh, I think Israel is defending itself against people who have said that they want to eliminate Israel. I think that's the tragic situation they're in. I do support free speech. So I do support, and I have written about this publicly, I do support the right of anti-Israel marchers, although I disagree with them. I do support the right of them to march and express their opinion. Obviously, it would be different if they were started to threaten individual Jews, but they certainly do have a right to uh, march. I do support that. Uh, and maybe finally, I'm, I support there's an organisation called Our Fight, ourfight.uk. And what that's about is uh, it's mainly non-Jews and it's uh, fighting for Israel, for its right to exist and against anti-Semitism. So in addition to my Radicalism of Fools website, which is more about thinking about anti-Semitism and trying to understand it, anyone who wants to make a stand against anti-Semitism, I would suggest they also look at the Our Fight website, ourfight.uk. Brilliant. I will give you another final word because I want to say something on that. If I knew anti-Semitism was happening, if I knew that Jewish people in my city were coming under the, the kosh or the gun or they were being discriminated against because they're Jews, I'd be the first there, Daniel. You don't know that's true because you don't know me. I would be the first person there. The same if it was somebody who was gay or somebody who was in some minority group or other because I can't bear that. I can't stand it. I don't see this anti-Semitism. And I am going to give you the final word. I'm going to read you a little statistic. I really don't. And, and this, this kind of gets me. And again, I kind of feel like, not you, but that Goyims, if you want to call us that, are gaslighted regularly when it comes to this idea about um, anti-Semitism. Let me read you. Um, I, dug, I dug out something for you. And it was, um, it was, let me get it now if I've got it. It was a major report in 2017 by the Jewish Policy Research, the mm -hmm. largest and most detailed survey of attitudes towards Jews and Israel ever conducted in Great Britain. It found the levels of anti-Semitism in Great Britain the lowest in the world, 2.4% of people expressing multiple anti-Semitic attitudes and about 70% having a favourable opinion of Jews. However, only 17% had a favourable opinion of Israel with 33% holding an unfavourable view. I think Jews tr thrive in Britain. I don't think there's any existential threat to Jews in Britain whatsoever. My Jewish friends, who I ask all the time, they run an accountancy firm in Manchester, they're very well known. They say, no, 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 we're not. No ex existential threat. So I swear to God, you've got 40 seconds, final word, I will not editorialise. Go ahead. Well, I'd say that report was in 2017, and a lot has happened in the last six years, particularly since 7th of October. So... I'm not arguing the majority of Brits are anti-Semitic or that Brits, uh, uh, Jews in Britain face an existential threat. But I think there has been a real uptick in anti-Semitism, even in the past few weeks, let alone the last six years. And I, I think that is really, really problematic. 
And I would hope even people, particularly people who want to say they stand for the Palestinians, they genuinely stand for the Palestinians, they should also stand up against anti-Semitism. Daniel's website is radicalismoffools.com. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. I really appreciate it. And I hope um, in the near future we can do it again. Maybe we'll get a round table going. We'll get uh, Stuart on and one or two others and we'll talk about free speech in the 21st century because I think it's never been under more threat than it is now. Thank you and Godspeed to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you, Daniel. Daniel Ben Ami, a journalist, broadcaster, writer. You read Daniel at Spiked Online. Uh, check out his articles there. His most recent, From the River to the Sea, is a coded call for genocide. And you heard Daniel on Thursday's Richie Allen Show. That's pretty much it for the programme today. Uh, thanks to my guests. Thanks so much to Alex Mitchell for coming on in the first hour. We'll definitely be following that, of course, won't we? The um, uh, the test cases, of course, against AstraZeneca for um, the 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 what was the yeah there's a there's a phrase that's gone out of my head, but the harms caused by the AstraZeneca jab it might lead to eighty one cases uh, in total against AstraZeneca. I'm just trying to drag a, a tune in now, and I just about have enough time to tell you the next time you'll hear from me, by the way, will be on Wednesday of next week. I'm taking a few days off. I mentioned this yesterday. Taking a few days off. Um, I won't be on air on Sunday. I'll be back with you next Wednesday. I definitely will. The Richie Allen Show next Wednesday at 5 o'clock UK time. So until then, you look after yourselves and one another, and um, we'll speak real soon. All right? <laughs>